Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at KFUO.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind. That is the mind of Christ. And to do that, we have our full assortment, our full cohort of Christ. Start with a C. Assortment doesn't start with a C. You can't use that word. Start over. Like from the beginning of the show? (laughs) All right. We have our full complement of our cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians. Now that we're derailed, welcome, guys. It's great to be with you. We have layman Peter Slayton, Pastor Merritt Dembski, Pastor Peter Hill, and I am Pastor Sean Smith. And let's just jump into it. Marriage is what brings us here together today. Marriage. Yeah. I couldn't do the voice. Thanks for doing that, layman Slayton. What brings us together today? I, I knew I could count on you. I think this is a record for the most times derailed within is it the past 30 seconds. I got my snark in so early in this episode. Uh, I don't know if that means it's going to continue or if I should stop now. Or my maybe wa- we my could, wife will text me. And maybe me we could teach the faith. Yeah, that's good. That would be fun. That. That's yeah. even better. But marriage <clears throat> is what we continue to talk about. Uh, we've we've been covering this uh, and the other hosts covered it uh, the last several weeks. Um uh, as we are going through Article 23 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And I just want to briefly reiterate that we we set up this uh, several weeks ago as, you know, this article is really about marriage, and it happens to pertain to a situation at the time of the Reformation when it comes to the marriage of priests, which still exists in the Roman Catholic Church today. And we've uh, talked about that, so I would reference you to the last several um uh, discussions on this, the last several uh, podcasts on this uh, that uh, we did about three weeks ago, and then uh, Pastor Hendrickson and Pastor Shear also uh, covered this topic as well, and we are going to be wrapping it up today, but marriage is really what's at the foundation of this article. But Pastor Dembski, I want to throw it to you. If you could just kind of recap very briefly for us uh, what what has been covered in the last three weeks of uh, discussing this this article. Yeah, so we've got a couple of different points that they bring up to argue for the positive uh, sides of marriage, which is kind of interesting when we live in the culture we live in. Sometimes we don't think of marriage being anything more than just a couple of friends getting into a light contract and that could easily be broken, you know, just culturally. But when we talk about marriage and the beauty of it and its origins and stuff, there is a lot to talk about. And so um, they they argued first that uh, people were created to be fruitful. So it's uh, that you've got this Genesis 1, uh, God's calling to people in the first place. Second, that uh, uh, because of creation that you can't just set a rule to say, by the way, don't desire marriage anymore. As a human being, it's just something that's that's built in, um, and then you get to the the third, which uh, says that people wrestle with lust, people wrestle with uh, temptation, and that marriage is the place where this uh, God given and good gift can be expressed and used rightly, um, and then. Uh, the fourth point is mainly that that the Pope's law, the pontifical law, it differs from all the canons and the councils. It's this. Uh, 
going past um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, going past the authority uh, usurping authority and trying to just establish a rule that's not in any of the canons or laws up to or canons or councils or anything and so uh, then last week uh, and continuing into this week was that you've got this false and superstitious claim that celibacy is somehow more pure or more holy than marriage rather than acknowledging that um, the, the gifts of sexuality are, are beautiful and can be used within marriage and that you're not holier for being celibate versus not being celibate within marriage or something like that. That's a good recap. Uh, thank you for that. And yeah, I, I, I think, and, and, and we also want to make the point with this as we have <clears throat> the last several weeks that with all of this, what we're asserting is this is what God teaches about marriage and scripture. And this is what you're teaching, which is rather contrary to scripture. And we'll see more of that at work today. Brothers, anything else you'd like to add before we jump in? All right, I see heads shaking. Um, they cannot see your head shake on the radio. No, so. I have nothing to um, add. Okay. No, I think we're doing great, <laughs> and right. we're ready to Fantastic. jump in. Fantastic. Well, how about you just go ahead and uh, take our reading there for us? Fabulous. In the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, in Article 23, we're picking up at paragraph 46. Melanchthon writes, In Colossians 2.18 where it says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Paul greatly disproves these angelic forms of worship. For when people believe that they are pure and righteous because of such hypocrisy, they hinder the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of God's gifts and commandments. God wishes us to use his gifts in a godly way. We might mention examples where certain godly consciences were greatly disturbed because of the lawful use of marriage. This evil was taken from the opinions of monks superstitiously praising celibacy. Yet we do not find fault with self-control or chastity. We have said before that spiritual exercises and putting the flesh to death are necessary. Certainly, we deny that confidence should be placed in certain ceremonies as though they made one righteous. Epiphanius has said elegantly that these ceremonies should be praised for restraining the body or because of public morals, just as certain rites were set up for instructing the ignorant and not as services that justify. Our adversaries do not require celibacy through superstition. They know that chastity is not ordinarily practiced. The adversaries sake, fake superstitious opinions to fool the ignorant, they should be hated more than the Encratites, who seem to have erred by a show of religion. These Sardanapoli Epicureans willingly misuse the appearance of religion. Excellent job on pronouncing those that was fantastic. difficult names. I yeah. think this is pretty straightforward and clear-cut. We could probably just move on to the next section. <laughs> no, I, mean, I knew I would get the yips, and so that's why I threw it to Pastor Hill to do the reading. And he came through for us big time. I may Thank not you, be able to pronounce Latin, but I got these names. <laughs> Which All are those hours of practice Latin. was worth it, right? <laughs> that's Greek. okay. Mostly Greek, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. All right, I, I was just trying to give you a hard time. But uh, let, let's come back to what, what is said here, Good. though. Um, so let, let's kind of take it piece by piece because there's several things that I think are, are good to hit here. Contrary to what Pastor Dembski would like us to do is just to move on. Um, I do think that there's several things to hit here. Um, so first we have this talk of angelic forms of worship. Uh, what, what's going on with that? Well, this is a reference back to the paragraphs that came before about the ascetic forms and the uh, 
trying to use self-control and uh, celibacy as a form of worship. There were folks before this uh, that uh, the Dominicans and others who would forgo marriage, they would fast and not eat meat at all. And they would completely and totally abstain from alcohol. Uh, this was a movement started by Epiphanius. And so the Epiphaniites were the ones who were doing this. And Paul says, uh, Paul says in Colossians, this kind of asceticism, if you want to practice self-control, that's fine, but it doesn't merit you anything. Instead, be connected to Christ who is the head of the church and don't get into these mystical, ascetic forms of worship as the main goal of Christianity. Uh, and so there's a, a link that's been uh, seen tying monasticism and this emphasis on celibacy together. Here are these monks who want to be really good and holy and pious, and so they start to talk about celibacy. They start to talk more and more about Mary being a virgin, and as they do that, it makes it look like real Christians are celibate, and the Christians who just aren't strong enough, well, they're not celibate. They get married. Uh, and I guess that, and they might say, well, that's okay, but, but real Christians remain celibate. And it creates a, a two-tiered system of, of more holy Christians and less holy Christians in a case where Scripture doesn't ever speak that way. I, I think that's a really good explanation, and I, I, I think this especially ties in. One of the reasons I wanted to highlight this is because in the church here, we're coming up this coming Sunday on um, the the observation of all saints. Uh, of course, that is this week that we actually celebrate that on the 1st there, November 1st. And, uh, and so then, you know, we see in our scripture readings, especially from Revelation and so forth, we, we see this, um, you know, this worship that is going on in heaven. And even in the proper preface in the liturgy of the church, we have this with angels and archangels and the whole company of heaven. We laud and magnify thy glorious name, right? And so we say that. And so I think sometimes we, we can read something like this angelic forms of worship and we're like, oh, well, that's the worship that goes on in heaven, right? And, and while it might be tied in some sense, because Jesus himself says at the resurrection, there will be no being given in marriage anymore. So marriage has its end in the, in the new creation. Um, it it kind of superimposes this idea onto, well, that's real worship. That's real holy worship. I like the way you accented that. And, and, and what you do otherwise, well, then maybe that's kind of worship. But that and, and so it's setting up this false uh, kind of two-tiered system. I think that's a good explanation. Yeah, I was, I was wondering, as you were talking about, Pastor Ill, the, the two-tiered system, I don't know if we've talked about this yet in this particular context, but this whole idea of sacerdotalism, um, which I'm going to do my best to define and feel free to uh, add add more to it. But this idea, particularly in the Roman Catholic tradition, that priests are not only set apart, but they are imbued upon ordination on the laying on of hands with a special uh, powers isn't really the right word because I don't, but it, it almost acts as if there's magical powers that the priests can do things that nobody else can do. That that God has given them this ability that they did not have before. Nobody else has these particular abilities to baptize, to administer the sacraments, you know, various things like that, and to make them efficacious in particular. And it seems to me, if we're talking about sacerdotalism, that this doctrine here about the marriage of priests and their inability. Well, they're they're forbidden to be married, is something that would be used to prop up 
that sacerdotalist doctrine, that this is, well, we want to make sure that we're, we're showing how they are set apart in every way. Not only do they have these special abilities nobody else has, but hey, they are so pure and more pure than any of the rest of us Christians. You know, it's all kind of a big package here together. What is, am I on the right track here? What do you guys think? I think so. That idea of sacerdotalism being about power more than a man under authority is a really well-made distinction that a priest would have special special power and somebody else using the same words or serving in the same function, well, then it wouldn't be real. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it does indeed set up that kind of the priest is on one level and the lay people are on another level. Um, In the medieval Roman Catholic system, there was a third level, that of the religious, and uh, of monks and nuns. And they would uh, also be on a higher plane than your common worker, your your servants, even your... your lords and your princes and administrators and magistrates and things like that, they were normal lay people, but the monks and the nuns, they were set aside to pray for everybody else. Hmm. And so they, too, had that kind of sacerdotalistic uh, idea behind them. While we don't see that terminology, you still see that kind of thing happen today, that we have um, the, the really religious people that that are involved at church and then the not religious people that just go to church on Sunday or, you know, like that kind of thing. And I, I try to emphasize to people, whether they're becoming members or just the, our members in general, that like, by all means, if you have an ability and you, you would like to help and serve the congregation in some way, awesome. But our, our Christian calling is to be faithful in the different areas that we're called to, to be faithful husbands, children, employees, you know, all these things that uh, it's not that so-and-so is better because they, they serve on the coffee crew for Sunday morning or something like that. You know, they, they get, the, get there at 7 a.m. Yeah. Wow. They are and, clearly, and God bless them for that holy yes. work. Yeah, and but God bless the, the holy work of the guy who's at home trying to be a good father and get his kids yeah. up and ready for church too, right? Right, exactly. So we still see that that leveling that tries to take place in people's minds, you know, the, even if they don't use that kind of terminology, we see that leveling kind of taking place that we have to repent of ourselves to think that we're so much better than someone else when it's we have nothing to boast of everything that we have of our salvation is a gift from christ given to us you know i I think that's a really helpful point um to to see how we still see this at work in the church today and for me it takes us back to um uh, a question that i have here is this related with the previous article where we we saw some of this going on they talk about these ceremonies there in uh, uh paragraph 48 um that uh you know they talk about these certain ceremonies and so forth and in article 15 on church ceremonies we kind of talked about the same thing how there's like there's holy tears or more holy tears of of things created by the ceremonies that we do in the church that make you more worthy and things of that nature and so and how would celibacy then relate to that um, kind of human tradition or versus when it's a command of God? Am I making any sense with my question here? Relate it back to the previous article on church ceremonies, I guess is what I would say. Well, it's, it seems to be a, if I'm following you here and maybe I'm answering a different question, I don't know, but it seems to be, it's, it's in the same ballpark as the last article. There's just a more specific iteration of it in this case there's a more specific issue and that they felt the need to write up a full article about it rather than lumping it in with with all the other ones 
Right. And I think that's why I bring up the question is, is because, right, this is a specific instance of previous things that have been discussed. And so the Lutherans are, are still making the case, look, like these these are the general things going on in the church. And then, uh, as we've discussed here recently, these are some of the articles where there's specific abuses that we're addressing. It's not like the main thing that the Reformation is all about, but it's certainly connected to some of the main things. If we have a right understanding of the doctrine of justification, it will look like this and, and other things. And, uh, if we have a right understanding of the, the role of the, the whole priesthood of God, right? Uh, and then, you know, how we have this holy order of those who are called to to exercise this office as one under authority, as Pastor Ill uh, stated quite well. Um, but then what we have here is is we're setting up again, you know, how do you become more holy? How do you become better than someone else, essentially, is what it boils down to, uh, which is something that any Christian would deny. Well, we, we wouldn't want to be there. We don't want to create this tier system, right? Well, I think getting at your question here, there is a sentence here in paragraph 48. Certainly we deny that confidence should be placed in certain ceremonies as though they made one righteous. I mean, there there's our connection back to Article 4, justification. As we've talked about, there are references throughout this of placing confidence in these things, placing our trust in these things. And so while it seems to be off on a tangent, it, it like you said, it actually isn't as much of a tangent because this does tie directly back to in what are you placing your trust? What is the object of your faith? And if there's something in this, I am a, I am a priest and I am celibate and I am not married and therefore I can place some trust in that for my own righteousness before God. Okay, well, that's a problem. And that's, that's right back to the exact same problem we've been dealing with throughout the whole time. Marriage doesn't make you holy. Celibacy doesn't make you holy. Jesus makes you holy. Yeah. And and that's what the that's what Melanchthon and the confessors are advocating for. And it's what we advocate for too. There are a number of examples in in our contemporary lives as Christians where people will in marriage uh broadcast their uh their abstinence or celibacy before marriage. Um, and it can kind of become a, a popular thing to do. Uh, and, and I definitely don't have a problem with something like a, a chastity ring or, or something like that. But at the same time, we don't want to confuse that as being, well, that means that this person is holier than somebody who doesn't wear a chastity ring. Uh, over the last few years, there have been several articles about uh, in the Roman Catholic Church People will, uh, women will have an opportunity to, uh, to marry Jesus, uh, in a spiritual kind of a marriage. Um, th- that doesn't make them holier. And to be really honest, there's a lot about that that I, that I don't understand. I was going to say that doesn't really make much sense. I, <laughs> I don't know how that works. Um, <laughs> well, technically they marry the church, but they do use this still, language of still the doesn't yeah. make any sense. I, I know. And, and what it, what it is, and it's actually an old tradition. I, I was thinking about this as well. So I'm glad our minds as usual, well, not as usual, every once in a while we're on the same page, but here we're on the same page. And, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's this, again, this idea of, you know, to be devoted to the work of the church is something good. 
right? And, and I see that even there in paragraph 48. We've said before that spiritual exercises and putting the flesh to death are necessary. We need to train our bodies to not give in to the lusts and passions and desires and so forth. It's even good to be devoted to the work of the church so much so that you're going to say, look, I, I recognize that marriage and family would be a distraction from something that I'm completely fulfilled and and, and, and wonderfully uh, going for and, and doing the work of the church and service in whatever way that may be. But when you start to make a show of it, when it starts to become, you know, oh, kind of look at how much I'm doing for God. Well, now we've lost, you know, how one is truly made righteous. Mm-hmm. I was talking about just this whole idea um, just recently with a, a friend and a fellow pastor of mine, uh, uh, Adam Matheny. And uh, some of you guys here uh, know him. And uh, and he was saying this, you know, you you can look at it from either end, right? Nothing you do gets you into heaven, and nothing you do gets you into hell, right? But yet what we have when we recognize the gospel, right? When we recognize that Christ is our way of salvation. He is the one who rescues us from death and hell, right? What we then have is an opportunity to consider and to think about how do I live my life confessing that gospel, right? And so if we, if we view marriage especially as, look, I, I'm confessing what it is that I believe about the relationship that God has established that is good and holy, and I desire to live that in a holy way, or I desire, you know, look, I don't have the desire for marriage and family, and I'm okay with that, and I want to confess that to be devoted to the service of the church or to service of my neighbor in whatever vocation it may be, that's an opportunity to confess what it is that we believe, but it doesn't, it it, it, it cannot become a legal imposition upon others, right? And that's that's really what we're wrestling with here. That's what it boils down to. To sum a lot of this up, the argument that's being made here in the apology is not either for or against marriage, but rather against hypocrisy. Uh, For those who would set up a two-tiered system and say it is holier to be celibate, even though God didn't command it, than it is to be married, even though God did call for marriage, uh, or that there is any amount of, of personal holiness tied to this. That is really the issue, is the hypocrisy of those who would maintain priestly celibacy is necessary and that priestly celibacy is holier than married life. It's interesting you bring up the hypocrisy issue because the last paragraph you read is the one that really stuck out at me. Um, I'll just read the couple sentences here. Our adversaries do not require celibacy through superstition. They know that chastity is not ordinarily practiced. The adversaries fake superstitious opinions to fool the ignorant. So, like they're saying right here, look, they don't actually hold to these superstitious opinions. The adversaries equally know that this is wrong. But, in public, they are faking these superstition, superstitious opinions in order to fool the ignorant masses, the ignorant lay people. Maybe even to make themselves look good. Well, yeah. I, exactly. That's that's Once again, we're propping up the power again. Which is interesting because you mentioned chastity rings, Pastor Hill, and I, you know, I, I will confess that my own sinful mind works poorly for me sometimes, but I remember that being a big deal back when I was in high school and kind of the joke that used to be, and it's a sinful joke. I shouldn't say this about our Christian brothers and sisters, mostly sisters, but uh, kind of the joke was, oh, well, you know, the ones who aren't 
being chased. It's the ones who wear the chastity rings, right? You know, it was it it, it just kind of became a show, and you could see this at different aspects of their own life and so forth. And again, it's nothing against the chastity ring itself, and it's nothing to say that there's not forgiveness for those who have stumbled or anything like that. But when you start doing something that that just really becomes a show, and it's not really about a, a, a good godly life then there's a, a tough tension that we're not really holding. And I think that this really mm-hmm. does kind of boil down to, okay, what is marriage? And then look at how you're being you know, hypocrites about this. Well, and that's why we always have to be looking at why we do what we do. Because if we just are going through the motions, we always have to be checking ourselves. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing this so that people will see me doing it? Or am I doing it because, well, and then again, my wife tells me all the time that I think far too much and like, and I overthink everything. And so I'm, I'm always uh, doing that to myself and thinking, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I doing it for the right reasons and all that stuff? And then my wife's like, just live, you know, yeah. like function. <laughs> well, Christ forgives you. Yeah, the Christian life you know? is like, one lived out in tension. And so yeah, exactly. we have to hold this tension exactly. and, and we're too prone to either overthink or underthink or not think at all. Right. Right. God calls people to chastity rings optional (laughs) (laughs) good tagline okay and and just in the sense of openness why do we do what we do when we go to break it's because we have underwriters who help sponsor this show bringing christ for you anytime anywhere so we're going to break coming right back This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for me. Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. What is it that you want to share with us? Call the KFUO comment line at 314-996-1542. Tell us what we're doing right, wrong, or just leave a message with your thoughts on why KFUO is important to you. What would you like to hear on KFUO to make your listening experience better? You can call us anytime at 314-996-1542. Thank you for listening and sharing your thoughts with KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Hope Seeds, a Christian ministry which has been sending quality garden seed to a hungry world for almost 20 years, invites you to their harvest celebration on November 3rd at Chapel of the Cross Lutheran Church. Enjoy lunch at noon, followed by a presentation to learn more about Hope Seeds and a concert from Concordia Seminary Men's Course. Chapel of the Cross is located at 11645 Benham Road in Florissant. This is a free event, but a free will offering is welcomed. To RSVP for lunch, email mike at hopeseeds.org. Hope Seeds, plant a seed, feed a soul. Your family gathers to celebrate your retirement from a career of over 40 years. Tears of joy for your newborn child are mixed with tears of sadness as you hear the sobering diagnosis. You softly smile to hide your sorrow as you watch your wife struggle to remember your daughter's name. Whatever your season in life, whatever your joys or struggles, Christ is for you. Hear the gospel message daily on KFUO.
Welcome back to Concord Matters with our cornucopia of Christ confessing Concordians. That one comes from Pastor Hendrickson. You, you got that from Facebook. Yeah, one of That's the, like Thanksgiving the other right hosts. there. Yeah, yeah. He suggested saved, that one. You should have saved that for next week. No, he should have saved it for when he hosts the show. But, but you stole it. He gave it to me, so I used it. <laughs> but we have in this cornucopia, which sounds awkward now to have said this this way, but we have layman Peter Slayton, Pastor Meridensky, Pastor Peter Hill, and I am Pastor Sean Smith. And I forgot to give out the numbers at the beginning of the show. You can call in and interact with us. Uh, tell us, um, you know, like Pastor Hill, you did a great job pronouncing those names in the first half of the show. You can ask questions, whatever you would like, but you can call 1-800-730-2727. You can also find us on social media at KFUO Radio and KFUO at KFUORadio.org is the email. Um, So multiple ways to get a hold of us. And uh, we're we're clearly all checking Facebook during the show, so you can catch us there too. It's the best. And, And like when Studio Mom's around and like, allows us to live stream and so uh, forth yes it adds multi-tiers because they can see us and and how like flailing about we are um <laughs> trying to find out what we're going to talk about next and so forth but but i know what we're going to talk about next um how's this for a smooth transition for you we're going to talk about article 23 of the marriage of priests in the apology of the augsburg confession we're going to pick up with paragraph 50 pemsky i'm going to call you on a read sure <clears throat> Sixth, we have many reasons for disapproving the law of permanent celibacy. Besides these, there are also dangers to souls and public scandals. Even if the law were just, these should discourage people from approving such a burden that has destroyed countless souls. For a long time, good people have complained about this burden, either for themselves or for others whom they saw to be in danger. But the popes do not listen to these complaints. It is beyond doubt that this law is injurious to public morals and has produced vices and shameful lusts. The Roman comedic plays still exist. Rome still recognizes and reads its own morals in them. So God punishes the hatred of his own gift and ordinances in those who ban marriage. For other laws, the custom that was that if a benefit could clearly be shown, they were changed. Why isn't the same done with this law? There are weighty reasons to support such a change, especially now. Nature is growing old and is gradually becoming weaker. Vices are increasing. Therefore, the divine cures should be used. Should be used. We see that what vice God condemned before the flood and before the burning of the five cities, similar vices have come before the destruction of many other cities, such as Sabarius and Rome. These illustrate what it will be like in the end times. So now, marriage should be strongly defended by the strictest laws and warning examples. People should be encouraged to marry. This duty belongs to public officials who should maintain public discipline. Meanwhile, the teachers of the gospel should do both of these things. Encourage unchaste people to marry. Encourage others not to hate the gift of chastity. Should I keep going? Okay. Uh, Continuing with 56. The popes daily enact and change other excellent laws. However, when it comes to the law of celibacy, they are as hard and cold as iron, even though it is clear that this is simply a human right. They are now making this law more burdensome in many ways. The canon asks them to suspend priests. These rather unfriendly interpreters suspend them not from office, but from trees. They cruelly kill many men for nothing but marriage. 
These very murders of close relatives show that this law is a doctrine of demons, and they reference 1 Timothy 4.1. Since the devil is a murderer, referencing John 8.44, he defends his law by these murders. We know that there is some off uh, offense regarding schism. We seem to have separated from those who are considered regular bishops, but our consciences are very secure. We know, we know that, though we earnestly desire to establish harmony, we cannot please the adversaries unless we cast away clear truth and then willingly agree with these very men to defend this unjust law, to dissolve marriages that have been con contracted, to put priests to death if they do not obey, and to drive poor women and fatherless children into exile. But since these conditions clearly displease God, we cannot feel sorry that we are not allied with the multitude of murderers among the adversaries. All right. So this, this is a big section, but I'll talking about a, a connected theme There's some hard words in here. I mean, not like hard to pronounce like Pastor O mastered in the first half of the show, but also excellent job on reading Pastor Demsky. But hard words and, and like, I mean... He says, so God punishes the hatred of his own gift and ordinance and those who ban marriage. Wow. Uh, so, so what's Luther saying here? What, or not Luther, what are the Lutherans saying here through Melanchthon's pen? There was a time when those who would, uh, who were in the priesthood, when they would marry, would actually be um, arrested and even put to death. When it makes a reference to fatherless children and to widows, it's referring to the families of those priests that were uh, put to death for having the audacity to marry while being priests. And I really find this, this section at the end to be really interesting and really helpful for us today. In the wake of, of Reformation Day, as we celebrated it both on Sunday and coming up tomorrow, uh, sometimes there's the idea that the Lutherans split off from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but as Melanchthon speaks, he says, we have a clean conscience about this. We are acting in accordance with God's word, and you guys are putting us to death. It's not so much that we were doing, that we were trying to reform the church. You kicked us out because we said, this is what the Bible says. Uh, and so they point out the persecution that uh, was being brought on them for doing what uh, Scripture said was permissible. Well, and I think that there's actually kind of two um, persecutions going on here that they're referencing in the sense that there's the persecution that the Lutherans are undergoing um, for their position on what the Bible says. But then there's also the persecution that it, it seems like Melanchthon is kind of throwing at, you know, all the problems that you have with actual celibacy is God's punishment upon you for for holding up this ungodly teaching and making it a law and and is it any surprise that there's such such problems in the church when it comes to a right understanding of marriage especially among the priests uh and and all these illicit affairs and and just the the just terrible things that are going on and i think they hit it well you know these things went went on in cities before they were destroyed in scripture uh we certainly saw this in the days of noah and it's what will go on in the last days and i think that it's kind of sobering words also for us today um not just because we're we're on the you know kind of cusp of 
observing the Reformation again uh, tomorrow and as we did this past Sunday, but but also because we still see these sorts of sexual issues plaguing the Church of Rome to this very day. Uh, why why are all these things going on? Because you've un- imposed an ungodly law upon those who are called to serve in the office of priest in the church. Well, and it's always helpful to remember that that sexual sin comes up at any time, which is really interesting at the same time that you had the, the big Willow Creek Association stuff with Bill Hybels going on, but then you had all the Roman Catholic Church stuff going on. That sexual sin comes up, but one of the issues here is the 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 saying that... Oh, sorry, Pastor Hill is trying to say... The enforced celibacy? Yeah, that thing. So... <laughs> Um, but but the, uh, the the fact that there is this law saying this is the only way you can do this versus just other, uh, and I mean, it's all sin across the board, and yet you see the same kind of sin exist, and uh, I, all I can picture is like when you try to keep water from getting into something, and then the water just keeps on finding other ways to get in, no matter how you try to block it, no matter how you try to, you know, use a, the, the water caulk stuff, you know, like it always finds that way around in the basement or around the windows, whatever it is, it just finds that way in. And so you try to put these laws and say, okay, this is not ever permissible. Well, it's still going to sneak out in other ways and it's going to, it's, it's going to exist there. Yeah, that's, that's a fun image, right? And, and even referencing what we read in the first half of the show, right? There is a way to deal with this sin that does creep up up in a sin-fallen world, right, of sexual sins and so forth. Uh, his name is Christ, and he died for all sins, and there's mm-hmm. forgiveness. And, and, and it can be a, a laudable thing to desire to live a celibate life and, and a God-pleasing life in that sense. But when you impose this law, yeah, it just it's going to kind of cause it to seep in all the more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, with one, th- one phrase that stuck out to me here that I think is worth uh, talking about a little bit is in paragraph 56, where it says, even though it is clear that this is simply a human right. Now, the human right and marriage in our particular context today does not mean the same thing that Melanchthon is talking about here, that the reformers are talking about here. I, I be, you know, Today, human right means, well, if it's a human right, anybody should be able to do it, and you can't tell me that I can't, no matter what that marriage actually looks like. I mean, in our Western American culture today, that is how rights are talked about, especially, I can't talk, especially human rights. It sounds almost like you're saying we should read this with its context. That would be helpful. Yeah. When I think, you know, what's actually being said here is, look, this is simply the way human beings were created. They were created to marry and to be given in marriage. I believe that's Jesus's words saying to marry and be given in marriage. And to say, as we've said, this enforced celibacy or creating this law, really all of this, the problem is that you've made a law out of something that is actually a matter of freedom in terms of the gospel where you you can be given the gift of celibacy. And there are a few who have been given that gift. And we've also been given the gift of marriage. And and that's those those are the options. Here you go. And God has created us to be this way and you could be a priest or not be a priest and fall into either of those categories. Yeah. Would you say that it's it's helpful to identify this human right as it is there, it is available, it is good, it is God-pleasing, um, but it's not commanded that you have to uh, have it or... Or in the sense that I can demand it. I think maybe that's the, the thrust of it 
in our day and age today is that if something's a human right, I can demand it and I can expect it of you and you have to give it to me. Um, that's Except all, that's, do we? I mean, like, there is the, the human right of life, and yet in our own country, that is not a right that is allowed. Well, see, now we're going to have to get into the discussion of whether the idea of rights is biblical at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we got time for that one, This whole that, that whole thing. So, yeah, it should take a couple uh, minutes to clear up. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if we're talking about as, as Americans, and as Americans view rights. Yeah, that's a whole nother the whole nother topic. That's like a different show. Yeah, yeah, that might require an entirely different show. Yeah. <laughs> to shift gears for a second, I just want to make sure that everybody who's listening is really clear. In no way are the Lutheran confessions or are we uh, encouraging anything but chastity. Yeah. For husbands and wives to be chaste and love and honor each other. For those who aren't married to live chastely. Uh and this idea of chastity, which is really bigger than celibacy, is a big is a big and important point. The sixth commandment calls us to live chaste or sexually pure and decent lives. And that's exactly what we're called to do. And as we said Or scripture, keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled. Keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled, exactly. Uh, and as we set this up a few weeks ago. We said this is really about marriage and is played out with the marriage of priests. We continue to say and advocate and teach that this is all about chastity. There is forgiveness because there is no one who is completely and totally chaste except Christ. And he comes uniting himself with us in his means of grace, baptizing us, communing us, forgiving us, and speaking again and again his truth that he has made us pure. He has made us undefiled like a bride, as it says in Ephesians 5. Which ultimately marriage is a reflection of. I mean, I, I often talk this way, especially in pre-marriage counseling and so forth, that Ephesians 5 is just this great cosmic play that we get to live out exactly what the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, is. right? And, and what a blessing that we get to live that out. And, and I think that that's why this is such a lengthy article that we have here talking about marriage, as especially as it plays out to priests and so forth, because here we have this law in the church for those who are called to service in the church who are saying, yeah, go against the very thing that God gives you as the design of his relationship between the church and himself. And, and, and it's not for you. You don't get to live in that. And it's like, well, hang on a minute here. <laughs> I mean, this isn't just about, you know, getting, getting to, to, to live out your, your sexual desires in a God pleasing way through marriage, right? Uh, if it were just about that, you know, I mean, the Lutherans would maybe be making too big a deal about this. But ultimately, we're talking about the very relationship that Christ himself self-establishes with the church. Yeah, no, I agree that if we're, if we're going to look at this through Christ, the lens of Christ, if you can, that's where we start. We, we start with this idea of Christ and his bride, the church. Creation and natural law actually comes after that. That's, that's a further step in that, in that argument. We want to look first at what is marriage and Christ and the church and then go from there. I can't think of what I was going to say. <laughs> I, I didn't specifically raise my hand, but I also thought I had something, but it went away. We all noticed it on your face, but okay. nobody on the radio yeah. could. All no right. one can so. see the look of sheer terror when you realize 
Hey, he's pointing to me. Oh, no. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm like, you know, I bring Pastor Dembski on this show to talk, and then he just sits there, and he's like, yeah, you guys are sounding great. <laughs> <laughs> When he does contribute, he has gold, though. Indeed. Aww. <laughs> Layman Slayton, I'm going to call you in a sl- uh, to read. How about you read a little bit of the conclusion first? All right. We have explained, starting at 60, we have explained why we cannot, with a good conscience, agree with the adversaries when they defend the pontifical law about permanent celibacy. It conflicts with divine and natural law, and it varies from the canons themselves. It is superstitious and full of danger. Finally, the whole affair is insincere, for the law is enacted not for the sake of religion. It was enacted for the sake of control, and this is wickedly given the appearance of religion. No sane person can produce anything against these most firmly established reasons. The gospel allows marriage for those to whom it is necessary. Nevertheless, it does not compel marriage for those who can be chaste, provided they are truly chaste. We hold that the priest should be allowed this freedom also. We do not wish to compel anyone to be celibate by force, nor do we want to break up marriages that have been contracted. We also have shown on this on the side how the adversaries object to several of our arguments while we presented them. We have explained away these false accusations. As briefly as possible, we will now relate what important reasons they claim to have for defending the law. This doesn't really seem to be brief at all. (laughs) I'll keep going here. First, they say that it has been revealed by God. You see the extreme rudeness of these sorry fellows. They dare to affirm that the law of permanent celibacy has been divinely revealed, although it is contrary to clear scripture passages. These passages command that, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. 1 Corinthians 7.2 Likewise, they forbid breaking up marriages that have been contracted. See Matthew 5.32.19.6 and 1 Corinthians 7.27 Paul reminds us what kind of author such a law has when he calls it teachings of demons. Again, referencing 1 Timothy 4.1. Fruit show their author. Many monstrous lusts and murderers are now committed under the appearance of that law. The second argument of the adversaries is that the priests should be pure, according to Isaiah 52.11. Purify yourselves who bear the vessels of the Lord. And they cite many things to this effect. We have dealt with this particularly false reason before. We have said that virginity without faith is not purity before God, and marriage is pure because of faith, according to Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. We have also said that outward purity and the ceremonies of the law are not to be demanded today because the gospel requires purity of heart. A husband's heart, as it is, as in the case of polygamous Abraham or Jacob, may be pure and burn less with lust than those of many virgins who are truly chaste. What Isaiah says, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, should be understood as referring to the cleanness of heart and to the whole of repentance. Besides, in the exercise of marriage, the saints will know to what extent it is beneficial to restrain its use, and as Paul says, to control his own body in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4.4 Finally, since marriage is pure, those who are not chaste in celibacy are rightly told that they should marry wives to be pure. So the same law, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, commands that impure celibates become pure husbands. Excellent job reading. And and 
this this is a long conclusion, uh, basically restating everything that we've covered over the last, well, four weeks now. But I think it is bringing uh, several of the things together quite well that we've already even accented on this show here today. But I, I do want to re-accent kind of what's at stake here. I, I, I think there in paragraph 60, it says that these things, this this law of celibacy was instituted for what purpose? Control. control. It's right. power. Yeah. yeah. It's it's really all about power. And we've made this point on several articles um, that the Lutherans have issue with. One, because they're against the teachings of Scripture. And two, because you're only instituting these laws or, or teachings in the church for the sake of control. Yeah. And that's just not right. That's, that's not the purpose of the church. Yeah, it's not. The church and its ceremonies exist to deliver Jesus to people, to tell people of Jesus, the good news of Christ crucified on the cross and to deliver that forgiveness. If it's about controlling people in any way, it's, it's gone the wrong direction. Well, and, and his gifts to the church and through the work of the Holy Spirit will be controlling enough as God needs it to be, right? If we believe that <laughs> the Holy Spirit actually works, yeah, and, 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 so and we par- do. <laughs> part of the struggle that I that I think that we Lutherans really have with the teachings of Rome is, look, you're trying to replace the Holy Spirit, and that's not right. That's not good. It's, it's very unbiblical. But then also, as we have this issue of control, then it, that it brings us back to where we always land as Lutherans, and, and Pastor Hill just put it well uh, just a few minutes ago so well. It's really about the gospel, because none of us are truly chaste. I mean, Jesus eliminates that in Matthew 5, his Sermon on the Mount. Oh, oh, you think that you can commit adultery by not sleeping with another man's wife? Oh, wait, what about the thoughts of your head? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, so, so who is truly chaste? Well, none. Who keeps any of the Ten Commandments perfectly? None. Again, the Sermon on the Mount eliminates that possibility. It's what the law does. It crushes and condemns, right? And so it drives us to that gospel. Christ is your righteousness. And and it just drives us to find our comfort, our consolation there, and to live in a godly, pleasing way, flowing forth from that gospel, not in a controlling sense. I remember what I was going to say before, and it actually fits into what we're talking about now. And it's going to be gold because when you talk, it's gold. Don't speak too fast. (laughs) No, but the fact that if we don't understand the biblical picture of sexuality and marriage, then we don't understand what it means when it talks about sexual immorality. We don't understand what any of that means. So if we don't understand the the picture of God bringing Adam and Eve together and Christ referencing that as marriage and then Ephesians of this faithfulness, this one man, one woman being the uh, the picture of marriage and that being what sexual morality looks like, then we automatically get off track with everything else that we don't understand what we, if we don't understand what marriage should look like and uh, where human sexuality fits, then we uh, automatically fall off the horse you know we automatically run into problems and so when we talk about the the power play here well then if we don't understand what marriage is of this selflessness this love this care then we don't understand what power is or what that care is or what that love is you know and and so it just it throws us off so it really was good and 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 you're actually accenting what (laughs) what the whole point of this article really is right i mean 
the, what they're kind of doing is coming at it from the opposite end of maybe what we've been talking about, right? Uh, in terms of this is what the good of marriage is, but they're saying, look, like here's sexual immorality. And so we're going to counteract that, um, with the proper teaching of what marriage is, right? And so, yeah, it's always holding that tension. And, and all of this runs into the problem of, well, we see one thing wrong, so we just won't touch any of it. And we see this happen again and again, that we have to hold this tension that we don't want to, uh, you know, eliminate living holy lives because then we might get puffed up and think we're better than someone that we were talking about at the beginning of the show, you know, but then you don't go down the other side of, well, I'm saved by grace, so I can do whatever I want, you know, and trying to live in that tension that we're not um, being... Uh, selfish and self-centered and trying to create ranks amongst ourselves and yet we are called to live holy and chaste lives and to live pl- god pleasingly and, and what does it all come down to i i want to highlight this from paragraph 64 virginity without faith is not purity before god right and marriage is pure because of faith right and so we see this you know which, which whichever way you choose to live in a god-pleasing way right what is always required Faith, right? And so it brings us right back to that very long article that we spent so long on, right? Article four on justification, right? That, that our faith clings to being justified, being made righteous in Christ and Christ alone. Are you saying this is actually all about Jesus? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of the point of the show. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Not, the, to par- to paraphrase it's not about pastor. Walter. Well, yeah, as much as Pastor <laughs> yeah, I didn't bring like a that. single quote in today. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to work something about Walter in, in the last couple of seconds. <laughs> yeah, I was say, it's kind, of, it's kind of summarize what Pastor Demsky said. is If you don't understand how this is actually about Christ, you're going to go off from there, too. I mean, you, you got to start there, see how it's about him, and then you'll end up going in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the intro to the show says Concord mattered to Jesus and to Paul, and so it does to us too, right? Isn't, isn't that what it says? It is what right? it says. And, and so, yeah, this is, <laughs> this now is we've really what the matters. Theme music going through our head too. Right? And uh, that, that theme music will be coming up here any moment now, <laughs> and so we're just looking for a way to wrap up the show. So I'm going to throw it to Pastor Hill, who always does it well. Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the one who purifies you and me and the whole entire world from all manner of sin, including sexual sins and sins of unchastity. And so through his death and resurrection, Jesus has made you pure. And so we indeed have that opportunity to continue to live as Jesus has called us. We live as the people of God. The church is indeed the bride of Christ. And so we live in that joyous reality day in and day out. Amen. Well said. Yes. By faith. faith. Well said, brother. (laughs) And that is what we uh, aspire to here on this show is to talk about how we live in faith. The last several weeks it's been talking about marriage, but we will be talking about, oh, let's take a preview of next time, the divine service, the mass. And so please join us next time as we talk about more ways that we live out and confess our faith as Christ confessing Concordians. Thanks for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.